We live in a sick society. And I mean sick in a really a biological way. And I'm using, I'm drawing on an example with the body here. The body, when it gets sick in a serious way, it becomes a preventative thing from being able to act out your full humanity. Our, our potential as living as human beings is severely restricted when we're sick. Sicknesses, diseases, and these kinds of ailments, these kinds of things, they restrict our ability to function fully as human persons. So um, using that as an analogy, this society works kind of the same way. The society as a body politic or as a, as a social body. When it's sick, it's unable to live as a society should live. It's unable to function the way a culture, a society should function. How should it function? The way it's kind of made by God, and we are social beings by nature, we are meant to live in society among other people. This is how we're made by God. This is why God says it is not good for man to be alone. Society exists so that human beings find a home through which they can commune with one another and with God together. That is to say that human society exists so that human beings have a nest by which they are loved by God and they can love God, by which they are loved by others and they love others. But when the society, when the body politic, when the social body is sick, its functionality is severely restricted. And so it becomes very difficult to find comfort or to find the right placement in a society that's not functioning well as a human person. We're not, technically speaking, able to, or we're being prevented from being able to love God and love one another, love uh, and being loved by God and being loved by one another. That is severely restricted because of the sickness of society. What is that sickness? There's a philosopher, Kierkegaard, he's really good. Don't read him though, he's very boring. Uh, he says that the sickness is despair. And I'm gonna say that, but a little bit differently. We are post-virtue now. Virtue, we live in a post-after-virtue society. Virtue, in all cultures that came before us, is a good thing. Virtue means self-control. It means having good habits. It means living like a human person. And it's not even a, obviously it's, the, it's what undergirds Christianity, Christian moral theology, but it's not restricted to Christianity. The Roman philosophers, Romans, greatly valued virtue. The Greeks greatly valued and spoke a lot about the need for virtue. The only way we can be happy as a human person is if we're virtuous people, is if we have control over ourselves. Because what's the alternative? The alternative is we don't have control over ourselves. The alternative is something else controls us, whether it's our sensitivity or emotion, whether it's our inability to handle difficult situations, whether it's uh, food, we're addicted to food, or sex, or drugs, or praise, or honor, or money, or whatever it is. When something else controls us, and we are not in control of ourselves, it's really impossible to be happy because it's impossible to function as a proper human person, which requires freedom. When we're not free, we cannot be happy. We are controlled, we are enslaved. No slave is happy. I say that we live in a post-virtue culture, which is absolutely true, because values, moral values, have been 
pretty totally reversed. From classical society, from even society not too long ago until today, the values have been reversed. It's no longer that virtue, strength of character, uh, self-control. It's no longer these things that we value any longer. We now value the fulfillment of our desires, of our base desires. We promote, we encourage people. If you want to do something, go and do it. That thing is going to make you happy. If you desire something, fulfill it, satisfy it. You have an itch, scratch it. Don't strengthen yourself. There's no need to strengthen yourself. Don't allow other people to challenge you to strengthen yourself. That's bigotry. Rather, fulfill all of your desires. What does that mean? That means we have a society populated almost exclusively by slaves. And that's too unfortunate. That's why we have a sick society. This has been going on for a long time. Probably what's in the period called the Enlightenment, probably about 150 years or so. And I think it's no coincidence whatsoever that just about 150 years ago, piety, reverence, devotion to St. Joseph really began in the Catholic Church. Because I think the Catholic Church always provides for us, for the world, for society, whatever society is deficient in and needs. The Catholic Church provides, uh, props up the thing that society needs at that time. St. Joseph started becoming really popular. He was not very popular until about 150 years ago. All church history, people didn't really pray to St. Joseph, not in any serious way. Until about 150 years ago, then he started getting really popular, and I think it's because of this reason. The need, the, the, the value of virtue really started to decline, and it's needed again. So that St. Joseph has been propped up by the church as a model of virtue, and indeed he is a model of virtue, one which we should all look at and take seriously. We see that in the gospel reading today, and definitely in other places of the gospel. But just looking at this one, let's see the context here for a minute. This is the uh, birth of Jesus, before the birth of Jesus, from the perspective of St. Joseph. Matthew is the, is the gospel writer for this. Luke writes it from the perspective of Mary. Matthew writes it from the perspective of Joseph. For the first three seasons, uh, first three Sundays of Subara, of Advent, we read from the gospel of Luke. Now we're looking at Matthew's gospel. Joseph is a good guy. An innocent man. A righteous man, that's what it says in the gospel. He's a, a just man. He follows the law of God. He comes in line of the old patriarchs that were faithful to God and followed his laws strictly. Is he an old man or a young man? For the most of the tradition of the church, the presumption was that he was old. And the reason for that is because well, how can a young man preserve the chastity of his wife, the, the celibacy of his wife? A young man wouldn't be able, be able to hold himself. He would have to sleep with his wife. So Joseph, ha Joseph has to be old, and that's how Mary preserved her virginity all of her life. But probably not, actually. Joseph was almost certainly young, because the Greek word that's used for Joseph as a just man that word, man, is a Greek word that 
is more like Juanka in Surah, in Chaldean, a young man. It's not a word, we don't use Juanka for old men. And neither do the Greeks use that term that they use for Joseph for old people. They use it for young people. Joseph was almost certainly a, a young man, which is the first sign that bespeaks of his great virtue. He respects Mary and her decision to have remained a perpetual virgin. And yes, he did in fact withhold himself because he was strong, because he was virtuous, because he was respectful in his character, because he loved God and because he loved Mary. And out of his respect for her and his respect for God and his respect for the divine plan that, who, that they would raise the Son of God, he decided that he also would participate in her perpetual virginity. That's the first sign of Joseph's wonderful virtue, almost impossible virtue. When we go on, Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant. There's a lot of debate about what he actually thought about this, but it's not impious to say that Joseph, it could have crossed his mind that she was being inappropriate somehow or another. That's not an impious thought on his part. It's just kind of a, the way the mind would naturally work. And if he did think that, well, he had two options. He could divorce her publicly or he could divorce her privately. But he was supposed to divorce her, to put her away. And he decided to do it privately. I have dealt with a lot of bad marriages in our Chaldean community. And it never happens privately. We're not good at private. When somebody does something wrong to another, most often, they try to expose that person by which they were hurt. Why? Because it feels kind of vindictive. It feels kind of like they're justifying themselves. So in order to satisfy oneself, we harm back in a public manner the person that did harm to us so that we feel kind of better, more relieved, like justice has been served. And yet Joseph doesn't, he's a just man, he follows the law, but he doesn't seek justice for himself. He lets people go. He's merciful. So he decides to put her away quietly. And then when the angel Gabriel comes to him in the dream and says, no, 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 don't worry, this child is conceived in the womb of your, of your wife by the power of God. He will be the son of God and so on and so forth. When Joseph realizes that this is from God, immediately he takes her up. He does not put her away. He goes with the plan of God. No matter how embarrassing or no matter how ashamed he might look in front of people, that doesn't matter to him. As the story goes on, Joseph knows who this child is going to be. He's the prophesied Messiah. He's the one that's supposed to die for, this, for the sins of the world. He's to suffer in the sufferings of this child. And he takes it up. He accepts it from God. To the point where Herod wanted to kill the child. And Joseph just totally reorients his life, grabs Mary and grabs the child, and they go out to Egypt. That's a just man, somebody that's willing to sacrifice himself for the good of his family, somebody that's willing to put himself aside for the good of other people doing the will of God. And then the kind of cherry on top of all of it is that 
Throughout the entire Gospels, Joseph remains silent. He doesn't say even one word. Because it's fine out of necessity to do the right thing, but when we grumble and we complain about it the whole time, that's not virtuous either. That's not strength of character, nor is that in control of oneself. Nor is that really a good spirit doing it for God and for others. And yet Joseph remains silent. Though treated unfairly, though carrying a burden in his life that he never planned on carrying, though doing all the things that he had to do, never does it with complaint, always does it joyfully and in silence. Joseph then is elevated in the church in the last 150 years, but if you've noticed, anybody that's fo that follows Catholic culture, especially in the last 10 years or so, St. Joseph has been elevated as a great man of virtue, and one of, even one of his titles is Terror of Demons because of it. He's elevated as a great man of virtue, as a great manly character, because this is what society needs. But this is what you need and what I need as well, brothers and sisters, because we do live in a sick society, one that is post-virtue, one that tells us that virtue is not good, one that is always dragging us towards not strength but weakness, not God, but worldliness. Joseph needs to be a model now in our families, in our individual lives, and in our churches. Amen.